Okay, who doesn't remember the time on TV during Mike Murphy's Candid Camera Show when Murphy, disguised as a Frenchman, pissed off Gayburn so much during a report he was recording that Gay said to his film crew, does he understand the expression, kick in the you-know-whats? And then, directly to Murphy, do you understand the expression of... It was hilarious. But if getting Gay to curse on TV is all Mike is to be remembered for, we would be doing the man a great disservice. Look at it this way. Back in the mid-1960s, Murphy was one of the first broadcasters on this radio station to break away from the Rethian model of broadcasting. What's that exactly, Joe? Well, it was a system devised with BBC by John Charles Walsham Reith, or rather, first Baron Reith. He saw broadcasting as a means of educating the masses, which in itself was a noble aspiration, but too often it came across as posh people talking down to us peasants. So put another way, during a post-colonial era, Mike Murphy and co helped democratise even the language we Irish can use on the radio. Bloody hell. Likewise, thanks to his tenure at the helm of the art show, which ran on RT Radio 1 from 1988 until 2000, Mike helped subvert a similar snobbish tendency that dominated arts coverage in, say, the Irish Times, a newspaper for which I did weekly pop music interviews during the same period. But I myself hated so much the position of hierarchical prominence given to the high arts such as classical music, that I'd taken in 1986 a college degree course in popular culture to try in my own tiny way to attack such elitist nonsense. But it wasn't until I interviewed Mike in 2000, I discovered that part of the reason he chose me to be the pop music correspondent for the art show from 1990 onwards was because, he says, I put pop in a cultural context. Mike also, in 1996, asked me to take his place and host the summer art show when it was on holiday, thus giving me my break as a presenter. So did all this make our interview soft-centred and sycophantic? You decide. I began playfully by taking my cue from an interview Mike did with Eamon Dunphy about only a game. I said I wished I could say of Murphy's book, Mike and Me, what he said about Dunphy's, but I couldn't in truth. Namely, attack his lack of application, niggardliness, and general demeanor. I said, I said it to him, did I? That was your opening question to welcome him to the art show. Oh yes, I and did. And he lost it because he thought you were. Oh yes, I remember. Complaints. I remember that quite well, in fact. And um, I, I had, I hadn't met him and done before, oh, right. okay. but I had read his book only a game. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember having read it. I, I mean, firstly, I was. I admired what he did in, st in stepping outside the norm and right. being as honest as he was in it. Okay. I liked what he, I liked what he did, but I also thought that if I was one of the the group, one of the team, I I would kill the little <laughs> bastard. Uh, but but having said that, though, I I did I didn't intend to be offensive when I okay. said it to him. And what okay. I was doing really was knowing that he was a, a combative sort yeah, of an individual. Yeah. yeah. I figured, okay, well, let's. I'd be well able to look after myself in a bit of a, uh, in any kind of a little ver verbal scrap right. or a little okay. altercation like that. And I figured, well, I know he'll be well able for this kind of thing too. So we'll have a bit of fun. But he he answered it in a fairly peremptory manner and was, I gather, very taken aback by the right. question. And afterwards, yes, it is true. I heard from a number of people how he he spoke very disparagingly about right. my cheek in opening an interview like that with that who did I think I was but he misunderstood what I actually had in mind right. about the okay. whole thing All but right. I think it started a trail of misunderstanding <laughs> between myself and Eamon Dunphy 
Um, I don't have any problems with him now. Do you listen to he it? probably has with me. Has, yeah. I, I have no, I have no doubt he has. I mean, he called me once one of RTE's flowerpot men. I never quite understood oh, what right. it meant, okay. but I take it it wasn't complimentary. No, it doesn't sound it, does no. it? No, 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 no. So, no. I, but, but I would have to say I admire what he does. And yeah, I, I enjoy him. Mike Murphy, who was born in 1941, the eldest son of Kitty and Ned Murphy, and who, before becoming a broadcaster, worked as a draper, then with the Castor Oil Company and as an actor. In 1965, Mike became an announcer with Radio Erin and moved into TV six years later when he was asked to host the National Song Contest. Later again, Mike hosted the Eurovision Song Contest and programmes such as Murphy's America, The Live Mike and Winning Streak. But back to the interview. In that last quote you heard Mike say about Eamon Dunphy, I'd have killed the little bastard, which is not the kind of line you'd have heard him say on Winning Streak. In 2000, I asked Mike if he felt hemmed in by his nice guy image. I know you say you kind of rejected it in an Irish Times interview I was reading there. You kind of said, it's not necessarily true. People say I can be savage. Do you feel hemmed in? I don't agree, no. But I mean, I do know that if I do let fly at somebody verbally, it's not a pretty sight. All right. Um, and I don't, so I don't like to do it because I always get pangs of conscience afterwards and I always feel that was unfair. For some reason or other, I, I was granted a very barbed tongue. When, <laughs> I, and, and I know, I know it as a child. I could off- offend my brothers and sisters very deeply and say okay. the cruelest thing All that right. you could imagine. And so I don't feel hemmed in by it, but I think because I'm generally easygoing, and certainly in a work environment, I'm generally easygoing, and I don't lose my cool very often. Very seldom I lose right. my cool. And I'm kind of relaxed about my work in general. Um, it's Then if I if I once lose my temper, then it be, it's a shock okay. to all and sundry around right. when they see right. what right. What, right. what chaos I will create. All right. So I can turn very, very nasty. And I've done when I've when I've in, in drink, I've done it particularly when, so I stopped drinking whiskey because after three, I would just try whoever was nearest me and bite their knee. That's what I threatened to do at Pat Kenny if he asked me any personal questions on the, uh, on the Late Late Show. You're not going to have a whiskey before you go on. No, I'm not. But you didn't, there are not, I mean, I must be said, there are not, I don't, I don't hear tales of people you exploded against in RT. People speak from sound ops to the team that work with you, speak most in the, in the general and in the main very highly of you. It would only have happened uh, through my career maximum five oh, times okay. I, in fact maximum five but uh, but but they would be pretty savage i've done okay. it with one or two producers now even okay. on the art show but in private okay but i've laid not in front of the whole team not in front of the team okay. i don't like that i don't like okay. to see that i don't like to see people being humiliated stripped down don't like but, f- but how about with guests i mean some of the some of the acid like people are still we're still talking about the day i mentioned even her name in front of you like nancy griffith you came in like a shot. You just said, I just can't stand that woman. I don't like her. Her voice yeah. irritates me. Why do people listen to this? Absolutely. I mean, I and, and with other guests, were the people you were talking with where you felt, I have to go for this. I have to go for him, her. No? Yeah, I felt with Nancy, Nancy Griffith, I must say, just hits the wrong note. She, she, was, she came in with that glossy, uh, wide-eyed, girlish approach to yet another interview. Right, uh, and right. I I interviewed her, and I didn't like her. I, she was smiling charmingly at me, but I knew there was solid glass in those eyes. <laughs> All right, okay. And uh, and I knew that she wasn't even thinking what what she was doing was was the guests I dislike are the guests who are broadcasting to the nation 
as distinct from having a conversation okay. with me. Okay. So I can see okay. it in their eyes very well. So, yes, I'm talking about me. Actors are the worst okay. to interview. They're very difficult to interview because they are they are performing the role of interviewee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm an actor. How am I? Um, and so I can't stand that. There was a, but a, you must a, have bitten your tongue a lot of times. I did, you know? but there was a famous, a famous incident that they, they always said they wished they had kept. It was a guy who had contacted me and said, I'm doing art in golf, and uh, could you do an interview with me? He, so he was using paintings, and he was trying to make people buy other than Waterford Glass for golf right. prizes. So okay. he was getting little sculptural pieces, little, right. little right. statues. They weren't. Okay. But he came into the studio, and I, I, we were recording it. And I, in, I was interviewing him, and all the time he was considered, and he was broadcasting to the nation. So they had it. They lost the tape because they said they're going to keep it as a, as right. an example. I said to him, "Listen, Jack, or whatever his name was, will you, for Christ's sake, cut the crap? Stop fucking talking to the nation. Talk to me. Do you understand me?" This is, I am not going to sit here and listen to you making your Robert Emmett speech from the dock. Talk to me. It's a fucking conversation between you and me. Okay, let's try it again. Will we? So we, tried. So, so we tried it again. And All he right. was terrific. Okay. He was terrific. Okay, he shifted. But I just lost my patience. With and they should have kept that for broadcasting yeah, they courses. They <laughs> That's exactly what they said. They should have All kept right. it for broadcasting courses. Like those moments. That's right, those yeah. Because, you know, some, was, someone's going to keep that and sneak it out there. But they don't have it. They look, went looking for it because they it travels the around the building. All right. At that point, remembering that this interview was for Hot Press and saying so to Mike, I asked about the role that music played, excuse the pun, in his teens. But I also had an ulterior motive for asking that question, and I love the fact that Mike twigged this in an instant. By the way, at one point he moves away from his desk in his office in Dublin's Harcourt Street, but basically what he's saying at that point is that as a boy, he was a, quote, narky little bastard. Baron Reith must be turning in his grave. Books and films are there from the beginning for you. They were kind of part of your cultural baggage as a child. They were. And even the records, I hadn't noticed this when I talked to you before. Mountain Greenery, which you've mentioned many times. Mm-hmm. Followed by Heartbreak Hotel, Hound Dog, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Glad you mentioned them. They're all exactly the ones. And I love them. 78s? 78s. And I used to take myself off into the dining room, which was always freezing. Okay. And, uh, and I used to sing along to all of those. Well, that kind of thing you just said there, there is that other kind of subtext to you. You say in the book that you will go into the room, lock the door, and sing along with all my heart and all my pent-up emotions. That's right, yeah. was, That was a way of discharging yeah. what you felt was the oppressive nature of the silence, your dad's silence and all that. Isn't this a way They're of... They're getting into this area now, John. I am indeed, I know yes. the technique. I know the technique. You use it all the time. <laughs> I know the technique. But weren't you? Wasn't that part of what music was to you, that form of expression, where you didn't express? You, and you, you say in the book, too, you were silent a lot. You didn't tell your friends about kind of these oh, no, never, your daddy. never ever did. So I mean, it was it was the same. It was not a good thing. I mean, you see, you see, this was all before counselling, before talking, before Marion Fanukin, before all the people that you could tell your story yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so there was never a question that I would ever. Uh, yes, my father, God rest him, and my mother did not have a happy marriage. And my father was one of those silent, as my mother used to say, the street angel of the house devil, and he was one. Right. And uh, he would come in and he was silent. I mean, you, you saw it in the book. Sure. And it was very distressing for me. I was the eldest, I was sensitive, I was kind of spirited. I had made the records, then you see, were a bit of a release for me because I'd want to get out of the room. 
Yeah. So I would yeah. leave the study. But it was emotional release too, for, and this is something that has yeah. remained consistent throughout your life. You know, that pent-up thing you say you later had to address. It was, yeah. I mean, I never became a good singer, okay. as many people would agree, having seen me sing and attempt to do it on television. But I never became a good singer, but I loved it. I mean, right. I, I used right. to enjoy it. I used to enjoy, I knew the songs really well. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and I was quite popular, you know. I mean, I was quite popular with... Uh, it was just quite popular generally. Like I, I kind of was like like the leader of a gang. Kind of all right, thing, you know, all right. we very big into sports, soccer and rugby, big time. I was a good runner, I was a good rugby player. Then I got into the acting, loved the music, played a lot of tennis. Right. So like I was really active, but a lot of it was out of the house, and that was all. Was well, that what it was? That was part of the part agenda, of wasn't it? To get out of the house. I wanted to be doing things outside. Yeah. Yeah. To get away from it, because now now Stokes says his daddy. Was a panel theater who used to bring the stuff to dad's garage, and they kind of he would have memories of the family. But you back see, there. but you see, my 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 father. I still meet people who tell me. I see. I unfortunately never got to know him. I, know. I never, yeah. ever, ever, ever had a conversation with him. Right. You know, and and so and then he turned out to be a real good grandfather, and uh, he used to he used to make phone calls to all and sundry. He wouldn't ring me now in, in later right. years, but he'd right. ring most of the rest of the family because he and there was too much between. Myself. But he used to call to the house and he used to have dandle the kids on his knee. And right. He was very good. And then, so he was a colourful character. And people in the garage, people, all the people at Harold's Cross loved him. Yeah, that's what Nas said. Loved him. And he was, a, he was a terrific character. Right. But you see, the but would people have known there were shadows in the home? No. Other Absolutely did. not. No. My mother would never speak to them outside. Right. Nobody would. Right. You kept that right. behind your own. Right. Right. My, my father, then, you see, was. He was trapped in this marriage too, and uh, I would—I I don't know about my mother and father's personal relationship, but I think after—I think they didn't sleep together after their late thirties. Okay. And that was because my mother was in ill health. Now, but that must have had a very bad effect on him. him. Well, that's what I was—that's what I was thinking when I read the book again yesterday. And there are those moments where, like that wedding night, which presumably you could have been conceived. So, so yeah. but your father actually cried into his hands on that night. Yeah, so and I you don't, And you don't say why. But I don't know why. I, but you do say a neighbour said that, uh, was it, uh, <coughs> someone said, Anne, whatever her name was. Was it what? Was, some neighbour said to you later that your mother had said that she had a problem with all that intimacy and close contact. You see, I, I actually don't know. Right. I, I'm even afraid okay. to hazard a guess. Okay. But all I right. do know that my mother, her family did not approve of him. Yeah. He was yeah. a motor mechanic. Yeah. And they didn't approve of him, and she ran away to marry him. Now, did she arrive on his doorstep and say, "Well, I'm here. I ran away to okay. marry you." Okay. And he said, "Oh God, I didn't intend to go this far." Yeah. yeah. Certainly, there were no physical relations before marriage. There wouldn't have been at that time. But so I most would, people, for, people. So for me, and he was he was basically a very nice man and a decent right. man. Right. See, right. so perhaps he felt the obligation to get married. Okay. Perhaps he never he did, and perhaps that's the root of the, of the whole trouble. That he felt he was pushed. He felt into this. that he felt he was pushed. I don't know that for a fact. Yeah, okay. But it's only in la in the years later when I can rationalize what may have happened that I'm able to come to some sort of understanding about maybe what did happen between the two of them. But it certainly didn't make for an, a pleasant uh, or or particularly good character building childhood for you. Mm. No, well, I mean, the, the story that was even abused by John Ryan in that article, we heard about the knife, and anybody I've talked to remembers that. No, but it's rubbish. But it is. The but I mean, that was an rubbish. emotional night, you know, and it was... Uh, yeah, but you also wanted him dead, which for me is more important ah, than showing up the knife. Did I, did I did really you? want him dead? I don't know. 
Would you not say, I'd, but did, well, if your son said to you, I prefer if you were dead. Yeah. And you're sensitive. Sure, I, I believe it. But I'd also, I'd also have to say, look, he said it in an emotional moment. And but he was, was crying. He was moment. crying when you went yeah, back Oh, home. God, he was. You know what I mean? Very, he was so very, he, very upset. Yeah. So, so that, he was, yeah. Does that not make you think of him and have him more as you get older? You not get closer to what he might have been feeling. Absolutely. You know? Did he feel, oh God, I've lost Michael? Did he feel. I've lost Michael. I've lost Michael. Oh, did right. did yeah. he feel, anyway, he's an anarchy looking bastard? Right. I honestly don't know because yeah. I was an anarchy looking bastard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was right. un, uh, quite unpleasant, you know? All right, okay. So there was a, there was a real bad side there. And that's where there, there is that kind of aggressive thing that I would turn. All right. During that quote, when I suggested to Mike that he used journalistic tactics similar to mine as an interviewer, I meant in terms of moving an interview nearer the area of psychological exploration, which was an area that fascinated us both. But next up, during this interview in 2000, I suggested to Murphy that maybe similar explorations of his own psyche had become more of a factor following the breakup of his first marriage to Eileen Murphy. Mike has since married former art show producer Anne Walsh. Because then, he, for the first time, submitted or subjected himself to psychoanalysis. And but it can never be resolved then, because you say you kind of did go, I think when your marriage was breaking up, you did go for the first time and only time to analysis yeah. to try and deal with the yeah. build-up build mm. resentment. Just and did that help? Did you finally say, yeah. I've got a, a kind did, of intellectual yeah, It helped me to be able to rationalise no. uh, my a relationship with my father, my lack of relationship with my father, you know, because... I really, he, I know he was very proud of me. He used to tell all the people at Harold's Cross how proud of me. Right, but he didn't tell you. Never, no. <laughs> See, that's the thing, isn't it? Isn't that that kind of yeah. All right. But the same was with your, with your mother, too. You also had a kind of strange dynamic of feelings, a strange range of feelings. But you see, she was, I, I mean, I was very close to her. And, uh, you know, I think she, and she was very good to me in terms of encouraging me to be different and to do the things I want to do and, you know, to travel. And she encouraged me to right. not to be ordinary. She sort of had. She also gave you an interesting book or something. I saw that in one of the articles when you were thirteen. Yeah, she gave me a series, "Delight," which is a series of essays by J.B. Priestley, which is pretty good start. Which was quite an interesting one, and I liked them, you know, and I liked them, and I I, I, I didn't know what in the name of God I'm getting these for you, but but uh, I I liked the the essays, and then I used to read avidly at the time as a kid. Um, But she was she was very far ahead of her time. She had a modern way of thinking, but yet she. Because I was the eldest, she did like to treat me as a surrogate husband. And I was the one that she would talk to and she would talk about uh, And of course, I was being turned against him. Now, oh, right. I don't know that she was doing that in, by intention. Okay. But I was being turned against So part of you hated her for that? Later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Later, when, when, when then I was going to get married, and I got married very young. And of yeah. course, you know, I, I met Eileen and I, I fell in love with her and... Uh, I wanted to marry her, but I hadn't even a job at the time. But one of the one of the things, the motivating factors, I suppose, not not to, not that I'm suggesting for a moment that that was the motivating factor, but an additional factor was definitely that I wanted to leave home to get yeah. out of the house. That's very Tom Murphyish, isn't it? Tom Murphy yeah. has written about that many yeah, times. Yeah, but I did. I wanted to get out of the house. But also, you see, what I found the ir- irony to be that your mother wasn't it. Your father was deemed not to be worthy of your mother. Well, no, that was only her family oh, who said that. You see, right. her family, I think, you know, that felt he was that he was inferior. socially inferior. Yeah. But like, but he wasn't. 
Okay. But but, but they didn't was, turn up at the wedding or anything. Neither oh, no, of them turned no, up. No, no, they didn't turn up. So there was no one you to taste snobbery. So he and then and then uh, my mother's uh, brother, poor uncle Jack, was a bank manager, and of course this was a big deal. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when my father would go to Uncle Jack's house, any of the parties, uh, my father would sit in the kitchen drinking stout. Okay. But he wouldn't come in with the rest of the family. Okay. And and I don't believe he was he was feeling anything other than my place is really in the kitchen. I think that's okay. how, I think right. yeah, that's yeah, how yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. Now I don't you see, I would love now to have a conversation and say, okay, let's sort this out. Can you just tell me what in the name of God happened all those years right, ago right. that you were unable to deal with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you would recommend to any children, be they daughters or sons, if they have similar questions of their parents to go and talk to me now about it. Yeah. Well, there's the no, opportunity. No, yeah. Because there might be a story that they don't talk about. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, there might. That, but you, uh, but also didn't, your, your mother then didn't approve of Eileen. <coughs> well, she I mean, didn't so this whole network. Yeah, of, the whole thing. But then, but she didn't approve of Eileen, I think, because she could see that I might leave. She yeah. didn't want that. She called you a runner or something, said he was a runner. Who so was Eileen, she used to call me the runner. All right. <laughs> the runner. But I mean, <laughs> well, your marriage didn't actually have a good start because your daddy also said you were a worthless bastard. He did, yeah. She told her that. Break someone's, yeah. break he, someone's he, heart. He told her that. And of course, I was very angry when he said All right. She only told you going home that He was right. But <laughs> <laughs> I was still very angry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can say yeah. it. Uh, it's all right say for me to say it. All right. But those, those kind of schisms were always there. Those kind of tensions within your, within your home. Yeah, were really strong. Uh, they were very difficult, and it affected all of the children, but all of them in different ways. You know, all right. You know, all, all right. through the family. Declan got out when he was only seventeen, yeah. so he missed a good lot. In many okay. ways, I protected him. He was number two. But my sisters, Patricia and Catherine, got it, and so did John, who was the youngest. Right, right, right. You know, so they weren't easy days, and but on the other hand, I think they might have been made easier. Um, had they been in the last 20 years? Because you say people, because could, people could talk about them. And a young person like me could actually challenge or could get on to someone and say, hey, listen, will you talk to okay. them about it? But I just feel sorry now. My, my poor father and my mother must have felt we lost Michael somewhere along the way. And, and he, he did, wasn't as kindly disposed in later years as maybe a, an older son should have been. That you weren't. I was. You had let them down at that level. I think they maybe felt that. You know, I think right. I think they maybe felt that. But I, but I honestly don't really know. But do you feel a failure as a son? No, I don't feel a failure as a son. Uh, well, as do I feel a failure as yeah. a son? As their son. Uh, I don't. I don't actually know because there wasn't what was expected of me. I mean, I was always kind of generous in ways. Um, and I also, I suppose, I brought some credit on the family. All right. So from that point of view, I don't think an awful lot more was would have been expected of me. All right. I don't think so. But you still have that line that was said here when I saw you the late show the last time round about the kind of continuing idea. If there's a hereafter, hereafter I don't want to meet them. Well, which a lot of people. But I remember my mother watching that and just going, "Good Jesus!" Yeah. You know what I mean? It is a very strong. It's a terribly. It's a hard thing to say, and really. See, I remember when I did all that, Joe, when I did the, the Late Late Show and yeah. about the book, yeah. it was after the, the trauma of my marriage. Right. And, and what happens in that like, Yeah, and what happens in, in that time is, I mean, it's, it's, again, you're able to look back on it and reflect on it. 
even a couple of years later. Yeah, a couple of years yeah. after you're able to do it. And and so my marriage had broken down, and it's bad enough a marriage breaking down, and and uh, such a, a huge change, you know, a catastrophic change in your life. But it's bad enough it happening in the first instance for all involved. But for it to be in the newspapers on a very regular basis makes it all the more difficult for everybody. So the wounds are opened. You are you're kind of separating for a period of time afterwards. And I was. And during that period of time, I wrote the book. And be, I think because I was so, felt so open, so exposed, so damaged myself, I possibly, my, possibly I, I lost an element of my normal judgment. And I think my normal judgment and discretion went a bit out the window. And I, that's why I don't feel, I don't feel now as angry at my parents okay. for what happened. Okay. All right. And I probably was unjustified. Damn it, they were only trying to get through their own lives as best they could. And they didn't know how to handle it either. Yeah. So I was, yeah. I, and, and writing about it in the book, I, I now wish I hadn't. Because just that particular thing. That whole thing about their marriage and that. Right. You wish I hadn't talked about it at all? No, I'm glad I thought about it because it actually I talked about it. Sorry, talked, talked about, about it in about the book. It. Yeah, I'm I, sorry I, mean, I made. Right. I'm sorry. I, I mean, one of the worst experiences ever for me was that this is about walking into a shop and seeing an Evening Herald headline, yeah. I tried to kill my father. And yeah, I just yeah. thought, oh God, the poor man did not deserve that. Okay. And I mean, okay, I threw a knife at him in yeah. a fit of temper. Yeah. But I didn't try to murder him in his bed or anything. But I was angry about something and I threw a knife at him. But it does read worse than it actually sure, was. Sure. And it sure hurt him. Yeah. It sure hurt him. It hurt him a lot more than it hurt me. Yeah. You know, yeah. because yeah. He, was, he was very upset about it. Although, again, he would never speak to me about it. We never spoke about it. Okay. All right. So, but so I do feel at that time, so the book was probably ill-judged in its timing. If I were to, if I were doing it again, I would take a more benign view, I believe, than I did at the time. But you would not like to hear Mark or your daughter say, "I don't want to meet my father in the hereafter." I would absolutely not. You and know? that's why I actually have changed now to the extent that I would actually very much like to meet my would father. Would you? Would you? In the hereafter, let's get to talk to them. And say, yeah, get to stand for to that talk. conversation. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But it's like at times of grief, like like uh, like at these made these made huge catastrophic times in in people's lives of death, and, uh, marriage breakup, these great events, um, they do leave an element of damage. Was yeah. it also that you were actually going through analysis at the time you were writing the book? So you, you were to be told to look at the way. wounds. Yeah, so you that's right. not self-evasion yeah. no longer. Yeah, it's true. So you had no choice at that level. It was like, and you were writing it as you were talking to that Dr. Mm. Dunleary. So, but when you say the paper's making it public, you're, you're talking specifically about the way the Sunday end hammered away at it every Sunday and kind of ran with the story. One of the past. things that I always, always maintained was that I, I don't whinge about the Right. And I okay. and I really don't. I don't whinge about it. And I learned that many many years ago. That I, I if it's I take it on the chin. Okay. Now, but it hurts nonetheless. But I do go by the old edict of don't let the bastards know you're hurt. Okay. And right. but it just come to me and Tom Widger. That's another part of your book. Don't have much time. <laughs> but uh, that's right. And who so, called you Marshmallow or something? You never never forgot that, that was one Tom, Tom, OD. Uh, OD. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You see, what I don't like is, see, what, 
There is that side. There is a tough, hard side to my personality. Okay. All right. And if someone like Tom O'D at that time saying I was a marshmallow, he was wrong. Okay. I knew what, what I was doing. What does it mean? Self-centered. Self-centered. There's no depth. Like, yeah, no yeah, depth. Okay. Self-centered. And the right. same with I suppose Eamon Dunphy uh, calling me. I think the flower pot presumably meant more or less the same thing. I'm what are you sure. calling it? Flower pot. Oh, the flower pot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever that. And uh, and presumably that's what it meant. But they're mistaken. And and I think the way I handled my own career when I when I le- wanted to leave something, I left it. Right. When I wanted to move, I always got things done as I wanted to do them. You still do, don't you? I still the do. The moment it's time to go, you go. Absolutely. I didn't like, get my timing right on this. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I my timing right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. the timing has been right. Yeah, it has. It has. Yeah, but that, but that's, that's been something that drove you. You see, but you also explained that as a rationale behind the end of your marriage. You said you're a man who was constantly hungry in need of stimulation and needing something mm. more. I mean, that's part of your nature too. It is, yeah. Isn't it? Mm. You know, whatever happened, I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't sure. want to go too much into that. I don't want to that. talk about that, but yeah. But you know, that, that element of, and the fact, I mean, that you were continually growing while doing the art show was firing hungers that maybe led you in other directions, apart from love, apart from another woman. It's like you always move. Oh, on. I think so. You know and what I mean? I, I do think so. and I think Which to me is moving against this image of you as this, and I've heard people in the Irish Times say to me, they hate you on the art show. Okay, here I must stress something about the next section. When I, at one point, not completing my sentence, say that Mike is a numbskull, I meant that's how he was seen by some of my peers in the art section of the Irish Times. It obviously was not, or is not, my perception of the man. Also, after Mike suggested that Paddy Woodworth, one of its editors, was a snob, I had to say off tape that this was not my experience of the man who had given me my weekly music slot because he said he liked my socio-political tilt on things and whose own politics were decidedly left-wing. I've fought your case mm. because you're, you're a lame brain, you're a numbskull. You know this kind of, he's yeah, just a fucking see, right a that thing. But what I'm doing is I'm, I'm actually functioning for listeners outside. I know. I'm not showing off. I actually do know a, a deal more, perhaps, than I let on to know. You definitely do, because I've seen I you do. do that in the art show. Where Absolutely. We say something off mic, and if I use something like postmodern, you let me use it. That's when right. I'm on mic, you say, what's this nonsense, Joe? So, so you're moving into so, the... Well, I'm very conscious of the right. fact that... And, and what I did, what I believe, that what I, I did with brilliant teams on the art show. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that has got to be emphasized too. The art show was a success, huge success, I believe, through the years, for, um, through its own breeze but also through the uh, the teams I've had working with me. I've had some fantastic teams, you know, yeah, yeah. just really yeah. great people working with me. But very much part of it from my own point of view was, this is relatively new to people, the, this thing about the arts. There was a feeling of timidity in some areas about it. And there were also the the kind of people you're talking about in the Irish Times. You exactly. see, I believe that, I, yeah. I, I actually believe that the Irish Times has assumed much of the ethos of the art show. Do you? I believe you. Well, I believe that, it has. Okay. Well, I do. All right. And I, but I believe, yes, yeah, certainly within the Irish Times itself, there were many skeptics about yeah. my doing the art show yeah. in the first instance. And, uh, and in RTA. I had, and I had some of the uh, the, um, the Irish Times people in, uh, uh, some of the people who were involved on the editorial side in, in the art show. And, and I remember one or two of them being incredibly patronizing right. with me. Reviewers from the Irish Times. Well, the person I'm thinking of in one instance is Paddy Woodworth. Oh, Paddy, yeah, okay. Paddy Woodworth. Because right, yeah. uh, he was the arts editor at the time. He was the arts editor at the time. At the time. So, I mean, uh, an arts editor of the Irish yeah. Times coming in yeah. to me 
And I made some joke about um, stamping grapes. So I said it was stamping the tomatoes to death or something like that. And he turned around in conversation with somebody. He turned around and said, no, Mike, that's wine. On air? Not on air. Oh, okay, yeah. I bet you would have had something to say to I that. Said, I said, well, did you actually think I meant that I thought that peasants trampled tomatoes? I said, I knew that was wine. All right. And, uh, oh, just thought you might have known. Okay. And I thought, right. you arrogant little All right. fucker. All right, okay. And uh, so, consequently, I found that with a number of these people, and there were some of these people, and there were a lot of them in the Irish Times, as it okay. happens, and academics as like well. Like arts workers. Arts workers. Book reviewers, book reviewers, reviewers, yeah. reviewers, all that stuff. Okay. With some of them that um, I, suddenly, I realized that I actually had a greater breadth of knowledge than most of them. All right. Yes, they right. might have said I specialize in literature. Yeah. Yes, they might have specialized in theater. But across the board, right, okay. I actually had a greater right. breadth of knowledge. And as right. the years went by on the art show, um, I did garner more yeah. more knowledge, more yeah. information than than most of the my my uh, critics. This next section I didn't use in print simply because it would have read as too sickly self-aggrandizing on my behalf. A line I know I'm walking dangerously close to during this show. Even so, I told Mike that I thought he was, here we go again, a clever bastard in the sense that when it came to his weak spots, he brought onto the art show the likes of Ethna Tinney to cover classical music and myself to cover pop. But I will use the quote here because Mike's comment makes it clear that choosing me had, in part, a personal meaning for the man. What, but you also, you didn't use, but you see, me, but you learned. You see, you, you'd be a good example of it, Joe, because you were, you were able to, to articulate um, the popular culture and you were able to define it. You were able to place it, popular right, culture, right. through music in the main. Yeah, yeah. And the relevance of that, to me, goes back to my childhood, Same where stuff. I was in Listen to Elvis Presley and Mel Torme and whoever else. Yeah, yeah, and this yeah. is popular. That's popular. Yeah, that's culture. Yeah, but yeah. placing it in a context no, is very important. But that's what you were doing. But similarly, with right. Ethna Tinney coming in and going through the composers' right. lives and all that, again, I knew a lot of people don't know anything about Brahms. Right. So when Ethna Tinney is talking about Brahms and what he did with his life and all that, to me it was riveting. I was learning. <coughs> and so were a lot of other people. Right, but it's... But it's not the way it all has changed over the years, and I've watched it because I've been with you since 1990. The shift has changed. Because when Elvis <coughs> Presley died, the Irish Times considered it not worthy of a front front. The only paper in the yeah. world. He was just a rock star. He was just a Now rock the star. Irish Times is dominated by promotional articles pushing gigs that can make money that's from. Right, yeah. So that's where everything has shifted in the time you've done yeah. the art show. That's right. So from the high art uh, paradigm to popular culture, yeah. it's okay. That's right. Which is what you were arguing for when you See, started truth, in your first interview in the Irish Times. Yeah, that's about right. the aren't you? Yeah. I mean, the truth of the matter is that the, the, the emphasis, if you took the emphasis on the arts from the time I started the arts show and you had in the Irish Times and particular, I'm not picking on the Irish Times okay. because I think it's the All best right. paper in the country. Okay. Uh, but there were, there were people in the Irish Times and there were people in the arts and they effectively felt they owned the arts in general, that they had a special insight into the arts and that they would disseminate the information on the arts as they saw fit okay. to the great unwashed who really didn't need to know. What they really needed to know was what I, the critic, the mediator, think about the arts. Yeah. That's yeah. what they need to know. Yeah. Not about the arts themselves. Right. I, I said, no, I want to know about the arts themselves. And I don't, particularly, I don't particularly want people to think that I'm the clever dick 
who's going to tell them my interpretation of the arts. I'd like to get people who actually can communicate enthusiastically about the arts to talk about what the arts are. Right. As distinct from hearing somebody, that's why we, when academics come in to the arts show, there are some extremely good academics who come into the arts show, you know, Declan Kybert and right, right, um, right. Uh, Brendan Kennelly and others. But, but many of them, we drop them immediately. Why? Because they are broadcasting to the faculty. Okay. Many of the people who write the introductions to catalogues in, 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 the, in some of the galleries um, around are writing, writing um, profiles of the artist that the artist himself doesn't recognize using words that have to be dug out of a dictionary somewhere and uh, sentences that I and many people like me simply don't understand. But in my case, I'm willing to say, I don't understand what that sentence means. Right, right. But they're only interested in it's a publication on my CV and the other academics, curators, directors will read it and be impressed. All right. That was the stuff that I was trying to do, to at least put a dent in. You felt that very specifically about the visual arts, though, didn't you? I did. I thought, I thought and was, it a, was it particular arts critics in the Tribune, the Times, or wherever that you went? That's exactly what you're doing that I want to undo. Yeah, I wasn't, it wasn't even a mission. Oh, okay. Part, right. Really, it All wasn't right. a mission. But I did see that there are a lot of people like myself who are enthusiasts about the arts in general, who are not purporting to be experts and who would like to know a bit more about the arts and would like to feel a bit more comfortable about stepping into galleries or even discussing an artist's work. Right. And that was, the, that was the public that I was going for. And as it turned out, I was right. And you can see that I was right by reading the Irish Times now, and it is doing what the arts show does, uh, continue to do all the way through those years. So the Irish Times philosophy in terms of coverage of the arts has actually shifted around more to an arts show philosophy right. than the other way around. Right. And so has the culture section in the Sunday Times, which yes. calls itself the culture, not the arts. But you're looking at an arts show formula. Yeah. In that magazine. In that magazine. Yeah. And no, that's I why agree. I think the arts show formula was the one that won out over right. I then asked Mike if after he, in his book, went public about the breakup of his marriage, any kind of pressure was put on him by RTE. Wouldn't you, as one of the key presenters, not be deemed to be a good role model to people because you were stepping out of line? Oh, I, I believe uh, there Even were people five, three who took years that ago. view. I mean, I was conscious of some people ignoring me or not speaking to me. That. But in the main, people were very supportive. All right. Very supportive. So I didn't suffer that badly at all. all. Like, and and I, I've no doubt a lot of things were said behind my back. But in the main, people were very supportive, and, and many of my colleagues wrote me letters right. and of support right. inside, which were which were very touching. A lot of them did, and I yeah. suppose the fact that I had done something that was to many people anathema and was deeply offensive to others, there were others who felt, well, it must have taken a bit of courage to do it. As in leave a marriage or go leave all for someone else, mm. fall in love with someone else. Well, a lot of people, a lot of my friends, I mean, damn it, a lot of my own friends have, have uh, gone with women, had affairs, have had relationships and are still in their marriages. And in right. some instances that I, I would be very aware of, it's, it's simply because of either convenience or lack of courage. Are you a part of a romantic? Yeah, I, I yeah, think, yeah. You know you are. Oh yeah, definitely, very much so. 
I like the idea of romancing people's lives. I think it's one of the most valuable things that can happen to but a person. But you're supposed to lose that as you get older, Mike, I am told. You seem not to have. Because even when you write about Anne in the book, it's in lovely terms of soulmates and life-affirming and exclusive yeah. life, and we are happy. And you usually hear that of people who are 20. And, I, and that's what I would actually say to you. You've given people like me who didn't marry her or aren't involved to later the, the hope that there, is, there can be life for a second love affair. That if one breaks down, a marriage breaks down, someone can go on to do something positive with their life. Maybe a lot of people took that from your story too. But instead of stood in judgment. But I believe that's true. And, you see, and Eileen is a lovely woman. And there was no question that it was a bad marriage that I had to get out of. There was absolutely no question about it. Oh, what happened was um, we married very young, in our very early 20s. Um, and although we had a really good marriage for many, many years, we we did gradually just grow apart. Yeah. We were different people in our 40s uh, by a long shot to the people we were in our early 20s. And I suppose I had gone off on a certain route in terms of following uh, following other interests. And um, that is where... Like, which is what I said about the arts and that. The but arts, the arts yeah. yeah. So, yes, I, I'm sure Eileen would would uh, attribute some of the responsibility for the breakdown to my becoming involved in the arts. The arts at that level. At this point, I quoted something angry Mike had said about his mother and as reported in his book. But Mike said to me, I don't want to go into that, Joe. So I lightheartedly asked why once on the radio he'd mocked Big Tom's song, Gentle Mother. A Freudian segue, if ever I heard one. Mm. Uh, also, well, then a lightweight question. Why the Big Tom Trenton? Which goes oh, back to yeah. Jennifer's mother. You've been slagging your own mother. I'm <laughs> slagging her. And then he said, yeah, it's in the book. You saw that, yeah. That was why. Because uh, I was slagging the record. And he said to me, and Chief Judge, just play the record and say nothing. I didn't know who he was at all. This big man with the fringe. As I said, like a mobile tax cottage on the corridor. But what's wrong with Gentle Mother? It's because you work with Barnes. Gentle so. Mother. Yeah. <laughs> I was slagging it on the radio. And uh, in those days, you didn't slag That's it true. on the radio. That's true. Yeah, and yeah, I was yeah. in hospital requests or something like that. All right. And uh, Tom, I was, it was nice. For me. It wasn't kind of major. But that is, it, isn't that true of RT that the kind of, uh, that was around the time of the pirates. And RT did loosen up, broke away from the rate, Very much writing so. and figure of BBC uh, yeah. uh, imitation times. And people could say, begin to say, with, like Jerry now, the idea that someone would upgrade Jerry Ryan for saying something about a record. Absolutely. But you remember Terry Wogan playing a record, a Fancy Brothers record that had the word bloody in it. All right. The record had the word bloody in it. Right. And he was hauled over the coals. Okay. All right. All right. It was as bad as that. You couldn't yeah. say bloody on the air. All right. You All couldn't right. say damn. The same, you couldn't yeah, yeah, do it. Yeah, it was yeah. out the window. That was bad language, bad taste. Bad but it was the kind of uh, quasi-BBC model that dominated it was, Radio Ireland yeah. for years, wasn't Very it? Much and so. even when I played those old tapes on the Years Go Pop, they sounded like a BBC. The announcers yeah, did, yeah, sounded like it. a and, you, and you did have to kind of wear, you had metaphorically to wear your best suit while you All made right. the announcement. All right. Okay. Um, so <laughs> it, was, and it was somewhat restricting. So it was only then when Wogan started off this kind of... Uh, Seat of the Pants kind of broadcasting. Okay. And then I followed on with Brendan Ballard. Yeah. You know, Wogan was doing it and then we followed on doing the same kind of broadcast. Right, more improvised, more improvised, kind of off the cuff, kind of throwaway, bit yeah. cheeky. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah. that was when it all started. But we were breaking a mould because as an announcer, you were a formal radio right. air announcer. Were you ever upbraided for it? By many times. Powers the pay. God, yeah, many times. Many yeah. times. A lot of people didn't like the style. 
a lot of people didn't like my style in radio at the beginning. Right. Which really was what, didn't which like. what show then? Well, then that's I was just doing a request program. Okay, right. And right. Uh, that was where I kind of made my name. But because I was kind of lively on some of the request programs, and I did build up a bit of a following. Um, again, although they didn't like my attitude, um, they they had to live with it. it was shifting out, it was shifting people were. Yeah. yeah. The years go pop, which I referred to there, was a twenty-six part history of popular culture I made for RT Radio One in nineteen ninety-eight. But next up, Mike and I discussed the fact that at one point, his TV show, The Live Mike, was vying with The Late Late Show in terms of ratings. I wondered, might Gay Byrne have gotten jealous? Would, would you have ever been seen, though, as, uh, you know, I love the famous uh, football Mike in Trinity, you know, when you were doing the French thing, that famous clip that was... Ah, yeah, the Gay Byrne one, yeah. Would he ever have really felt that when you show it? Because he's, he's a highly competitive broadcaster, Mr. Byrne is. Would he ever have yeah. seen you as a kind of... Well, take your program and fuck off. We don't like you and the late show vying for the top slot. No, he was no. never like that. Because, curiously with enough, you. we always got on well, Gabe right. myself did. We always got on well. He knew that I wasn't going to challenge him personally for the late, late show. I had made that clear from for way, way back at the beginning. Well, when Tom McGrath... Was it well, Tom said that yeah. to don't. And I, had, I agreed with Tom. And no, no Tom, Tom shows him this elder brother idea in a family situation. The younger brother. The younger brother. That's right. Okay. As the host. But you the weren't really running for that. Oh, no, I wasn't yeah. even... No, you weren't even in broadcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so he chose Gay. But, you see, Tom would have taught Gay and myself a, a very significant... You see, Gay and I would have been of a, of a kind in many ways in that we would be canny people. Right. You know what I mean? We'd be yeah. intelligent and canny. Um, you can be brainy and stupid. Right. <laughs> but we, neither Gay nor I would have been either of those things. And we, we both learned, I think, from Tom okay. how important it is. And I, Tom was the, only, the first person I ever saw to do it. McCulgan was the only other person that I saw in the same kind of um, area, the same arena where Tom was able to do it, that Tom could could watch television as he made it. Right. Now, I have always used that in my own in my own broadcasting, and I know Gay has too. Right. So, in other words, as you're as you're doing a show, you're listening to the show, and you're watching the show, but you're making it at the same time. So right. you're using two parts of your brain. Okay. So what you're doing is it's like you said to me about questions on the art show. Yeah. Because I'm I'm hearing it as a listener and saying I don't understand that bit. So you're media schizophrenic. So media schizophrenic. No, I <laughs> so what, what I can do, I can dissociate myself from what I'm actually doing and put myself in the place of somebody who's either, who's All listening right. or All watching. Right. All right. And okay. that is why on a program like Winning Street, I can ask the questions that a huge chunk of the audience would ask in the same situation. All right. Because I, I could be watching and saying, well, why doesn't he ask about such yeah, and such? Yeah. Similarly on the arts show, and that is why some of the, the, the intelligentsia would say, he's asking such obvious questions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not, they're not obvious questions to a huge chunk of people that I'm interested right. in talking right. to and right. having listened right. to me. Right. So you share that trait with uh, Gay? Gay is the only other one I know All who right. has that. Who has that, who can yeah. do that. On, on both, television and radio. Incidentally, this interview was being done to mark the end of the art show. And as part of my research, I had read in the Library of the Irish Times its file on Mike Murphy. I told him I loved in particular the recent quote which claimed that the art show was 
probably the single most important outlet for the arts in Ireland. Mm. As is. Mm. As, 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 as with you at its tower. Yeah, not bad for an intellectual numbskull, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I it's not ironic that they end up de- defining it, it that way. Like it, isn't it, though? Having back <clears> then, <throat> you know? That, that's right. Would you also have met power brokers in RTE who didn't consider you uh, heavy enough for the art show from the outside? Very much so, yeah. There were a lot of people in RTE yeah. who didn't consider me. Such as who? Head of programs or, or? No, funnily enough, the director at the time, Brian McBain, because it was the one right. who pushed it. <clears throat> but there were many producers in there who didn't. But to be honest with you, I never got into that job because in certain ways I didn't give a politics. Yeah, I didn't I never gave a damn about it. You know, right. I always kind of just went my own way anyway. So it never phased me that they didn't that they did All consider right. me lightweight or they didn't consider me, you know, sufficiently weighty for doing an arts program. I just went got on with it. That's what Joe Mulholland used to used to say about me. Joe Mulholland was uh, I, I used to get on well with Joe Mulholland, but he's he said that uh, to me in front of a lot of people. Uh, at one stage or another that Murphy's the only one who just comes in and gets on with it right. no fuss right. and that's the truth gets out yeah just get on with it you also advised me at one point to keep away from the internal politics and drinking and all the ganging up together it's the worst things. thing you can do right? don't go to the canteen I've always said that and Annie the same thing I said, don't 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 why though what's so corrosive because I'll tell you why because you get sucked in you're hearing bad things about other people you're hearing prejudices expressed you're forming views that you don't even know you're forming about people. And it's not quite fair to those people. You're better to take them at the face value at what how they react to you. All right. All right. <clears throat> and also you become uh, you become part of a camp or are seen to be part of a camp. And right. that, again, is not good. Uh, so you go down if the ship goes down, if that camp goes down. All right. I don't know about you, but back in the 1980s, I listened to and loved Mike Murphy's morning show on RTU Radio 1. Once... I even wrote to him seeking advice in terms of a book I was writing about Elvis, and he graciously replied. But it wasn't until our interview in 2000 I learned that Mike often had a drink, or three, or more, before recording the show. I really wish I'd heard the programme in which he couldn't tell his bullocks from his heifers. Marion did once say that the job of the presenter and the producer is is, uh, of key importance. And that you and Gene Martin were the best representation of that company. We were a great yeah. combination. We, and he introduced fun. you to the arts too. Yeah, he did. Too, didn't he? he was, but Gene and I were great pals, you see. And uh, also, then it was strange life, early mornings. And then I used to drink quite heavily at the right. time. Too. Go to pubs even before you go on the air. How did you get a drink? Late in the yeah, we go to the pubs. Oh, the early the houses. Markets, the markets, yeah. Oh, so occasionally we'd do that. And then oh, we'd right. always go and have a whiskey afterwards. The nine o'clock in the morning. But did you at one point say something happened and you decided drinking before broadcasting is not yeah, the best Yeah, the cattle market was bored. Yeah, oh yeah, what did you say? What they couldn't understand, they couldn't make out my bullocks from my <laughs> store heifers. <laughs> <laughs> because you were slurring. Because I was slurring so much. Where? That to fade me off. <laughs> so I was always a little careful after that. I don't, I'm now very careful about drinking. Before, before, doing before doing the show. I, I might have one a glass of wine or something, but I'm very careful. All right, all right. But wasn't Gene really instrumental in terms of the way your fo- your career would then follow and shape? Yeah, because the, we used to go to the art galleries, we used to go to the auctions. And, yeah, uh, I learned a lot about the visual arts from Gene. All right, okay. A lot. And that question of the presenter and producer being key, because now you find more pre- presenters are producing their own. This seems to be the trend. They are, yeah. Do you think that's good or it's unhealthy? It depends on the if the presenter has... Many times I functioned as my own producer because, and I was, and RT always wanted me to be a producer. They always kept yeah. offering me the job, the title and all that kind of thing. And I kept saying, no, 
I didn't want the title. Oh. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I, so I, all, I was very lucky in the people that I worked with as producers. As producers, and in and you see, I would also be somewhat Machiavellian in, in terms of getting the people I wanted. All right, okay. See, I would, I would, I would say, if somebody was being mooted as the present the producer, I would go to the director at the time and say, "No way, I'm not working with that person." So this is in all your You better shows. change it. In yeah, all shows. Not, almost all of the time. Right. I, I, I would, and and in in most cases, I had approval. Now, that means producer approval. Well, by producer approval, what I mean is that um, I would insist that it would have to, that it would be somebody I liked and All respected, right. Right. and I would insist on that. Okay. Right. So I always called a lot of shots in there. All right. Okay. Did you choose Anne in the first place? Yeah. Mike and I then talked about the financial drawbacks of working for RTE, not as part of staff but purely on a contract basis, meaning, as in the case of himself and, say, Gay Byrne, financial security is only on a season-to-season or a job-to-job basis, and you get, for example, no pension. Mike explained to me that the move away from broadcasting into property development at the time was to try and ensure some form of financial security later in life. But have you, have you kind of, is there any sense that people can go, you're forsaking the world of the arts and the culture and this education and all that to become a money-making machine and maniac? It's not, it's not that at all. It's all clearly right. to try and create some kind of security for myself in my latter years. Was there in any way at the end of a lifetime of broadcasting you felt you had not been paid properly by RT? Never. You didn't feel Absolutely that? Absolutely not. I, do, I right. never, and I've never, I, an org, the organization owes me nothing. All right. Nor do I owe the organization. We both benefited from each other. I got a very good career, a good standard of living from the organization. The organization supported me for most of my career. And the organization, in my view, got damn good value out of me. I have no pension from them. Um, When the door closes, the door closes, and that's it. They owe me nothing, and I owe them Why do you have no pension from RTA? Because you were always on contract? I was always on contract. There was no pension. All right, okay. So... That's why I have to work to build up a pension. All right. So, uh, okay. so in other words, um, so though I never, and I've, I've always encouraged my, everybody around me, don't stop thinking an organization owes you anything. If you're not being paid sufficiently for the work you do for the organization, then leave the organization. But don't start whinging later on that the organization owes you. I, I'm a great believer in the code of the individual. You stand on your own two and you survive by your wits, your talent, your working abilities, and you, you are not dependent on others. And I believe in, I believe intrinsically in that. So I don't believe in organizations as such, as, as a support mechanism. <laughs> I'd forgotten that Mike Murphy continually referred there to RTE as the organization. Isn't that another name for the mafia? Okay, so thanks for listening to this show from the Mafia. And let's end with Mike Murphy reflecting on those glory days and glorious days he spent working with John McCaughan on shows such as Mike Murphy's Candid Camera. Good night. They were enjoyable times, I presume, for you. That must have been They really were the best days. fun. And yeah, John yeah. McCaughan and myself had a great time in those. Yeah. We did the American and the Australian yeah. together. Yeah. We had the best of but you also the thing that people remember most that when you watch that clip of you and Gay, John is there off camera with John, a raincoat. Larry Masters. Yeah. Is it yeah, yeah. same as the DCs? Yeah. So it was a great team. We did yeah. a fantastic team of people.
I was always lucky that I always had the best people around. Well, you weren't lucky because you just explained to me earlier you also choose when you could. That's right. You know what I mean? You choose carefully. And discarded. People who were. No, that weren't that it wasn't working. I haven't taken off things yet. I mean, let's, I want to get across to you're not leaving broadcasting. No, you're I'm doing not. a book series and you're still doing Winning Streak, aren't you? I'm still I'm doing a series on Irish literature of yeah. one series, yeah. Oh, okay. And that's just one series. Yeah. All right. That's all. And then goodbye. And then goodbye. Yeah. Really? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And Winning Streak. And Winning Streak. I'll keep that going for another few years. All right. Bills to be paid. They pay you well. And I like doing it. It's a bit of fun. Yeah, I like it. That's the one that I always... I love the idea of the way you said the people who said you can't do the art show and that, and you're going, what? No. Why not? You know? I don't see any reason no. why not at no. all. And if they have a problem, let them handle the problem. Right. A lot of people seem to accept it. I've kind yeah. of gone there. You know, I've kind of... But it's always been going just my own way, you see. Right. I've always said I'd rather just do it myself so that if it goes wrong, I can only blame myself and not other people.